commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. But all of America's summer of strangeness continues here tonight uh, with a guest I think is absolutely appropriate, beyond appropriate, really, for the summer of strangeness. I'm talking about the historian of the strange, Robert Schneck. I had the opportunity to uh, meet him way back in the day uh, at Lauren Coleman's Cryptozoological conference in portland uh a long long time ago i want to say like 2018 feels like a long time ago now um and and then uh hung out with him in baltimore at fort fest 2019 and had an absolute blast we had him on the show uh back in 2018 the fall of 2018 but i want to get him on here uh this summer because as i said who better to be a part of the summer of strangeness than the historian of the strange of course uh folks are likely familiar with his books uh the president's vampire Mrs. Wakeman and the Antichrist, and, of course, the Bye-Bye Man and other strange but true tales and the Bye-Bye Man. We talked a lot about the uh, the Bye-Bye Man movie that got made based on the story that Robert wrote uh, on the last time he was on the show. So we, unless there's a Bye-Bye Man musical I don't know about in the works, uh, I, don't know, I don't know how much we'll get into the Bye-Bye Man tonight. But be that as it may, we're getting into some really fascinating stuff, and uh, he hosts the... Really awesome uh, historian of the strange Facebook group with uh, daily, at least daily, sometimes multiple times a day updates uh, with with really interesting and strange arcane stories from the past that he's dug up in his research. So, with all that said, uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I had a blast the last time I talked to you, and um, you know we're so sporadic nowadays with Banal of America that I never know when I'm going to get a chance to talk to people again. So, once I sort of push the boat off into the sea. That is the summer of strangeness. I knew I wanted to get Robert uh, on the program. So welcome uh, back to Banal All America, Robert. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's great to be back. Now, I guess let's catch people up a little bit on sort of the background, the bio, you know, for folks who might have missed that, that prior episode. Who is Robert Schneck? How did you become the historian of the strange? Because I, you know, I remember talking to you before, and I'm sure you did the bio background, but I couldn't quite recall sort of that evolution of events myself uh, earlier today when I was thinking about this conversation. So how did how did you wind up gravitating toward this really unique sort of niche, if you will, in, in Fortiana? I don't even know what you'd call it, true crime. It's almost like a true crime Fortiana. That's what I really like about the stuff well, you do. Well, do you know, uh, Tim, since, since there isn't really a proper term for what I do, I just go with strange but true. 
There you go. Okay. Yeah, Strange But True pretty much lets me write about anything I want, as long as it's strange and true. Um, there you go. I, I, I mean, I've written, about, I've written a lot about the paranormal. Um, I, I love writing about crime. Uh, a lot, I've been writing a lot about suicide lately, uh, which just – which, uh, strangely enough, it was Lauren Coleman's writing that got me going on suicide because he wrote a book um, – about uh, copycat suicides and things like that, which yeah. it just it just it made me realize that here is an area that uh, it's could it really is, it deserves look uh, looking at. Uh, strange crimes are they get a lot of attention, but strange suicides not so much. So I, I have been looking at that a lot lately, but I've you know I've got uh, about. Five or six stories that I'm working on at the moment. Uh, one's a uh, Detroit serial killer. One is a um, some vampires uh, that were reported in the Midwest. Well, alleged. This they never they never reached the point where they actually dug up the bodies, but there was uh, <laughs> yeah. there was a question of where they might do that actually. Um, oh wow. And let's see, what else have I got going on? You see, I, I, I've actually got a, a bunch of, um, of card tables set up in my basement, and each one of the card tables has a story on it. And so I, I, put all the, I, pile, yeah. Yeah, I pile all the, uh, I pile all the reference books and the, uh, the binders, especially the binders. I have an enormous number of binders. Uh, which which I pile up on those and and as I get tired of working on one I move to another. There you go. That makes sense. That's yeah. a good. Uh, yeah. That's a good. So, but we, let me just get the background. How did you what what gravitate? What drew your interest to these to to the strange but true tales? You know, is this something that you've always oh. had as a kid growing up, and it became oh. your you know well, your thing? I, I, well, I found a copy of Frank Edwards' Stranger Than Science on my mother's night table when I was little. And I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I kept reading it, and uh, that more or less did it. And then, of course, it was the usual – it's the usual uh, round of things for anybody who is my age. You know, there were the books, but then you turned on the news, and there were stories about skunk apes down in Florida, and there were, a lot, there were lots of things going on in Loch Ness – and that was also during the, you know, those were also the years when things like uh, Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of were on television. They were they released movies like Legend of Boggy Creek. So, you know, it was a it was a combination of natural inclination plus the um, I think just the period. Also, my my own personal background. I mean. My mom is an emergency – well, she was an emergency room nurse. So when I was growing up, I typically would be sitting there eating my waffle, and my my mother had just come home from working all night, and she would be telling me about uh, the man they brought in in three different bags. And when she pulled pulled out the arm, she noticed that uh, his watch was still ticking. So – I grew up with uh, I grew up listening to that more or less every morning, and wow. my mother was my mother was always able to find the humor in it, and you know like a lot of people who uh, a lot of people who work with 
gruesome you know, who have to deal with gruesome things every day, she had a very good sense of humor about it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I, I grew up listening to that every day, and my father is an engineer, and when I was little, he he specialized in figuring out why planes crashed. So, I, I you know, I still remember him showing me this little screw that had been sheared, and he said, yeah. because of this, 300 people were in a plane that went down. So, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this was my and, – and just growing up in the suburbs is a little strange. So, you know, you put all that together, and here I am. But, there you go. Uh, but the, 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 what finally got me into writing was I, uh, I read a book – that I, I remember it was published by a company called Bloat, and it was a collection of the writings of murderers and serial killers and things like that. This was when that stuff was getting very popular, so some some companies were printing these things. And I was reading the uh, I was reading the book, and it had a section that was. Uh, a biography it was a it was a bunch of little pieces little things that had been written by Charles Starkweather and for people who who don't know Charles Starkweather and his he was a he was maybe 18 I think uh and his 14-year-old girlfriend Carol Fugate they were they were like the quintessential 1950s juvenile delinquents and I don't remember the year but he and his girlfriend went on a killing spree in Nebraska and surrounding states. I don't remember how many people they killed, but he was he they they were shooting people and stealing cars and um it was a whole nasty thing. But anyway, when he was put in jail, they gave him a notebook and they they said, you know, it might be a good idea for you to write down some thoughts and one of the things he wrote down was this description of something he said happened to him when he was when he was young and growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he said that he would lie in his bed in the morning and out the back window he would see this enormous figure that would it had no arms and a pointed head and it would scream. And he said that he thought it was uh, he thought it was female for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. And he even included a very rough drawing of it, um, really just a, a little more than an amorphous shape with kind of a point on top. But the way he described it, it sounded like he was seeing a Bigfoot. Yeah. He thought yeah, it was. Yeah, pointed head made me think that. Yeah. Yeah, he thought it was. Um, the spirit of death. He thought it was death that was, was standing outside his window screaming. Now, I don't think of Lincoln, Nebraska as Bigfoot country, but this all but yeah, happened yeah. before you know, this all this all happened before Bigfoot was was really well known to the public. So I thought it was really interesting and it was buzz it was buzzing around in my head for weeks. I, I just kept thinking that uh, boy, this is too good. I, I have to I have to send this to somebody. So I ended up – I'd never published an article before, and I wrote to Fate magazine, and I included a sketch for how I thought the illustration could look, and they printed it. 
And that was that. Uh, and then uh, later on, I got an email from Lauren Coleman asking if he could use it in one of his books. And, uh, you know, having it was like that one-two punch. That more yeah, or less yeah. settled it for me that uh, I was going to be writing about the stuff that I love more than anything else. And as for the focus, I've always loved history. So uh, I've also – I'm not – I don't have the world's greatest people skills, so talking to live people about things that happen to them is just not a – it's not my strong point. In fact, I was writing an article, and it involved somebody who was a friend of D. Scott Rogo. It was, his name was Raymond Bayless, and I got Raymond Bayless's number finally – because it was this was before the internet was really easy to use, so finding a phone number was not the easiest thing to do. I yeah, called yeah. up and I asked to speak to him, and he had died like that week, and his wife burst into tears. And I said, "That does it. I'm sticking to history, wow. which I love. Yeah, I'm sticking to history because no one ever cries, no one ever threatens to sue you. Although I have yeah, had, yeah, I've had, yeah. I had, I had." I have been warned off some subjects. Um, oh boy. Oh yeah, nothing 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 really overt, but well, I'll give you a, well, anyway, so I decided that I would stick to I would stick to things that involved old documents, old newspaper clippings, right. um paperwork. It never cries, it never screams. It it's just it sits there until you get to it, and I find that much easier to deal with. But exactly um, now, what uh, you tease that, and I don't know if you were reticent or if you just wanted to finish the thought. But what can you? What you hinted, you said that about being warned off. So I mean, what it, that that well, seems I, almost my my first. Well, I'm interested in what that it's all about. So talk a little bit about that. So you don't need sure. to Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, first of all, it, it sounds a lot more dramatic than it is. Um. Mm-hmm. The first time was when first time was genuinely strange. I called an historical society out in western Pennsylvania to ask them about uh some strange stories that were reported from Northumberland. And I got the head of the historical society and we spent an hour on the phone talking about really odd things in uh in, in the county, it maybe, maybe it wasn't Northumberland, but it was Western Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, this is all great. You know, can I call you back and we'll talk about it? And I'll, all right, you know, I'll, I'll do a story." Well, when I called back, he would never take my calls, and he just like completely vanished. It was it was it was very strange. It was weird. It, uh, again, that was odd. The closest thing I'd been to warned off was. Excuse, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very uh, that's very odd. I wonder if it had something to do with uh, if he knew you were going to write an article or something like like, like if he if he well, had second I, thoughts I, about that and then was like, oh no, I, I don't want to be. I suspect that's what happened. Tag was. I suspect that's what Did happened. Did you get a drink or something? He, he, no, no. I'm okay, fine. you're all right. I have everything here. The other time involved an island off the coast of Maine. And during the 19th century, a cult developed on this island. 
And I honestly can't give you too many details because the newspaper accounts are pretty vague. But yeah. they were sacrificing dogs and cats. And oh, my God. They, Oh, yeah. And they were supposedly on the verge of sacrificing a crippled child when the sheriff Holy interfered. Shit. Yeah, this is the story. This is what it said in the papers. Well, I said to myself, that's fascinating. So I wrote to the, I wrote to the historical society there, and I phoned them when they didn't respond to the letter. That, that often happens. Um, historical societies sometimes will have one person who comes in one day a week, so it's not strange yeah, yeah. if they don't respond right away. So I eventually called them, and I was talking to this lady who was perfectly polite, but she kept pointing out how everyone on this island is very proud she kept saying that and saying variations of that until she until she was more or less saying, you're not going to get any cooperation because we're embarrassed about this. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and so I, I said, okay, I'm not uh, – no one is going to help me write this, so I'm just going to put this on the back burner and I'll get back to it eventually. Oh, and I, and I have another wow. story about yeah, – I have another story about a tiny cult down in Kentucky – uh, where I got in touch with the, uh, I really wanted to write about this, and I, I tried to, uh, I tried to get, uh, I, I called their local historical society because I was trying to get the information from the grandson of the woman who was sacrificed, and um, and she was sacrificed. She was tr- strangled with a chain, and oh my um, god, yeah, he. He had a very, he had been collecting information about it for years, and I, I was, as you can imagine, I really wanted to talk to him about it, but he wouldn't. I was apparently not a Christian, or if I was, I wasn't the right kind of Christian, and he wasn't going to talk to me about it. Uh, so, so I'm kind of waiting for him to die, and then I'm going to ask the family <laughs> yeah. if I can have his papers. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not unusual yeah. for people to do things like that. I mean, Joe Citro has a collection of stories about, uh, you know, people that came to him saying, "I have all this great stuff," and he said, "Great, let me see it." And then they they start in with you know they start becoming very coy and uh, it, it's very strange. It's still easier to deal with though than someone crying. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah. People are interesting in this in the fringe world of research and stuff like that, that's for sure. So, yeah, and, uh, and you know, com- and communities respond to their strangeness in different ways. Some of them embrace it. Some of them love it. Some of them are embarrassed by it. Yeah. You know, uh, for, me, the, for me, the ultimate is when I contact a local librarian or a local historian, and I ask them about something that they never heard of, and they get excited – and they'll yeah, end up doing yeah. more research than I ever did, because you know, for them, this is like, this is this is their bread and butter. This is why they got into it, and it's not like the usual questions where uh, it's not like the usual thing where it's, um, you know, I'm looking to see what ha- you know, who my grandmother married in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, that, they usually get genealogy questions. Uh, I wrote to this one place in uh, in Michigan. God, this lady was so great. She she was so she got so excited about it. Um, 
they had a minister in 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 this small town, a very very small town, and he was uh, an eccentric. He was very odd, and he he uh, didn't have much money. He had to he he was in charge of two or three different churches, and he was kind of worn out by the whole thing, and. He had a friendship with a guy who was, I think, a handyman or something. He was, no one could really quite understand why these two were friends because you know, one was the local minister and one was kind of a, not the most respectable man in, in the community. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so anyway, one day the minister vanishes and they find a body burning in the church uh, oven. And the inside of the church, they said, looked like a slaughterhouse. There was blood everywhere, ah. bo- bo- you know, little bits of pieces of bodies. And the, uh, the again, this body had been stuffed into the the church stove and was slowly cooking. Uh, yeah. Well, every everyone set out looking for this guy who spent so much time with the minister, and they, you know, they got the body out and they wanted to identify it. Well, it turned out it was not the minister in the oven; it was the not too respectable guy who was in the oven. The minister had oh, killed boy. him and chopped him up with an axe, and he took off for I think it was Illinois or Indiana, uh, where he killed himself in an outhouse. He uh, tried cutting his throat, but that didn't work, and he eventually froze to death sitting out there. But, oh, my God. Um, yeah, it's quite a story. And he apparently believed that this man, this not-too-respectable man, had had some kind of hypnotic power over him and was actually able to control him and make him do embarrassing things and, and make his life miserable. And that's why he ended up killing him. And um, I uh, personally, I, I wonder if maybe the minister was in uh, was in late stage syphilis because he. I, I looked into his background and he apparently went through kind of a wild stage that got him thrown out of his first job as a minister. So yeah. it's possible he might have picked up uh, he might have picked up syphilis or something then because uh, third I think it's third stage syphilis where people go into something called paresis where they can, they can go crazy and i'm wondering yeah. if that's what happened to him they they uh they did uh an autopsy and the man who did the autopsy did find abnormalities on the brain so there were physical problems wrong wrong with the brain but i have to find somebody who really understands that sort of thing to to take a look at what this doctor said because I don't trust my I, I just I'm no specialist so I, I can't right, right. judge whether what, what what this might have meant but it's an interesting story and like I said when the local historian found out about it she just dove in it was terrific <laughs> now one of the one of the things that keeps catching my eye uh, I mentioned to you when we were setting up the interview I mentioned at the end of the show last week was uh. You've done a lot of research on autoerotic asphyxiation, which is such a mm-hmm. uh, it's a really it's such an obscure topic. It's fascinating. Um, I don't know really any. I only I only really know what it is essentially. Um, you know, and uh, I'll, I'll let you sort of set it up. But I guess uh, what led you to looking into this? Um, you know, tell folks what it is and let them know like how you ended up looking into this because you've got binders. Okay, you should, you probably oh, yeah. show off. 
the binders I, I on, actually, your, <laughs> on your page. I actually so, – those uh, were just yeah. two of them. Uh, those were just two of them. There are three more. Um, I have a total of five, but um, not to mention uh, journal articles and things like that, which is another pile. But uh, autoerotic asphyxiation is a uh, – it's a sexual practice. And what people do – and in the vast majority of, of people who do it are men. So I'm just going to say men, uh, yeah. even though some women, some women do it. But what men do is they induce a state of hypoxia. That is to say, they induce a state where their brain becomes oxygen-starved. They uh, usually use some kind of a ligature that presses down, I assume, on the, uh, the, the carotid artery, because that's the main artery you know, bringing blood back and forth uh, there. So they press that on down on that, and the lack of blood to the brain puts them into this state of, well, it's called hypoxia. And I, I, have, I never experienced it myself, so I don't know what it feels like, but... Uh, then they will masturbate while they're while they're in this state, and for some people, apparently the combination of those two things uh, is produces an incredible sexual experience. Uh, don't right. try this at home, listeners. Yes, I was because, just going to say, yeah, you, you, you took yeah. the words right out of my mouth. But you should definitely preface this: I have no legal team, so, <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to talk just, about this stuff. Do not. Do not, I cannot emphasize this enough, don't do any of this shit on your own. Don't, you know, don't even practice, experiment, any of that. You know, don't, yeah. don't do it. Because as we're, as we're going to find out, talking to Robert now, it uh, very often goes terribly wrong. So well, that, no, that's, it, doesn't uh, happen, it doesn't necessarily happen oh, it doesn't a lot, happen but it happens, it, happens a, it happens easily. I mean, a person, ah, okay. can, be, a person can, have, can have done it a hundred times. And they can really know what they're doing, but then that next time something goes wrong and they die. It's, it's right, right. a very it's a very peculiar thing, and it is extremely dangerous. So anyway, right. um, it, uh, again, it's uh, it's got quite a history. I mean, Desaad mentions it. Um, in one in his book Justine, apparently it's it's been done by some. Um, in some cultures, they, they will uh, they they use it, and it's also when uh, men are hung, legally executed, hanging. Sometimes they yeah. will uh, get an erection or even ejaculate when they're hanged. So that probably oh is what what. Oh yeah, it's very strange. In yeah. fact, uh, you know the mandrake root supposedly grows from the semen of hanged men. Oh really? Uh, but anyway. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's where that's where mandrake roots are supposed to come from. Uh, when the semen comes out of the of the hanged man, uh, it lands on the ground, and that's where mandrake roots come from. At least that's that's the story. But uh, anyway, so uh, and and then there was uh, an 18th century case, a very famous case of um, of a musician who was he hired a prostitute to hang him, and when he died, uh, she was arrested and tried for murder but she was found innocent because it, it he wanted to, to, her to do it and she had done nothing really wrong uh, it was all his idea you know, she yeah. had just done what he asked her to do 
Anyway, after that happened, autoerotic asphyxiation kind of disappeared from Western discussion. It it vanished from popular imagination. It uh, it wasn't until the 1980s, really, when uh, specialists, people who specialize in determining the cause of death, people who are actually more famous for their connection to serial killers, like Dr. Park Dietz and Roy Hazelwood, who are very famous for their connection to serial killers, they also are um, experts on determining cause of death. And they began looking into into these cases of autoerotic asphyxiation. So um, around the early 1980s, papers started to appear, and it became more familiar to people. Uh, It was was a part of an episode of uh, The X-Files, and then there were some high-profile cases like Michael Hutchins down in in Australia, the lead singer for In Excess, and of course then... um, David Carradine, which really made people familiar with it. Uh, right, and of course, that's kind of like when uh, it became mainstream or something, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's reached the point now where I have seen it as a punchline on sitcoms. So, it, you know, it's that, it's that familiar. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's very... It was even on Family Guy. I'm sure, I'm sure of that. I'm, yeah, <laughs> that, that I definitely believe. Yeah, well, it's very, it's a very strange. Uh, you know, obviously we warn people already very much, don't do this. But it's, it's also very strange in a sense too, because it's like, uh, it's accident, it's accidental. It's an accidental way way of dying. So it's very like, um, it's not, it's not like a suicide. It's, it's a, it's, no, it's absolutely this, not. It's this thing gone terribly wrong, essentially. Yes, it it is an accidental death. Uh, you know, part of the reason why people like Park Dietz and Roy Hazelwood got involved was that insurance companies would not pay uh, would not pay off for they would not pay. I, I don't remember the rules exactly, but I think it was some people have double indemnity in case of an accidental death, and. If a person commits suicide, that's obviously not an accidental death. So families would say, "Well, you know, look at this. This, this is apparently, this is not a normal death." So they would have experts look at it, and if if the expert could determine that no, this was a case of autoerotic asphyxiation that went wrong, then the insurance company has to pay for accidental death. Although yeah. that's still kind of a gray, it's still kind of a gray area because the insurance companies will argue, well, a person who engages in something that is so obviously dangerous is, you know, they're not properly covered by insurance. It's it's um it's I, tricky, I, I, I can imagine, yeah. It's tricky. I'm not an expert on it and that's not the aspect of it that interested me. What yeah. what got me involved was uh was I found an old clipping. I I think it was from I don't know, I could look it up, but it was it was either the late nineteenth century or the uh the early twentieth century. And it was a very strange clipping. This boy had gone into the woods uh to, with some friends to do some hunting. And he was he had a rifle with him. No, he had a shotgun with him. That actually matters. Uh he had a shotgun okay. with him. And 
he and there's this he sees this dummy hanging in a tree and apparently some of the local boys had been scaring people with this dummy so he takes his shotgun and he shoots the dummy only oh, no. yeah he blows a hole out of it and he realizes that that was not a dummy so he goes over and there is this stark naked man hanging dead from a tree um and the uh he's he's hanged himself and there's a knife on the ground and the the coroner who uh or the medical examiner whoever whoever did the uh whoever did the autopsy was describing how you know there were all of these pellet holes and from the from the shot of when the boy yeah. shot uh, shot the body but the only other marks on the body were the uh constrictions the um the uh, constriction marks around the throat where where the uh where the rope had had sunken into the neck and also uh, a small superficial knife wound on the neck and remember there was a knife on the ground and i thought yeah. to myself i'll bet that this was i'll bet that this guy went out into the woods and he decided to do you know, a little asphyxia and a spank. So he hanged himself, and then he tried to use that knife to cut the rope, and he dropped it. Yeah. And he died. And, that, and I'll bet that's what happened. But since the doctor did not know what autoerotic asphyxiation was, he had no explanation for what had happened. The whole thing was just mysterious. Well, then that got me thinking, and I said, there have got to be other examples of this where, yeah. where, where I will, I'll look at it and say, oh, I know what that is. You know, that was a case of autoerotic asphyxiation gone wrong. And then I started looking, and I started finding them. I would look for cases of men who were found hanged wearing women's clothing, especially. Uh, that is... It is a. Uh, it, they call those sorts of things, you know. So in in normal speech, we call them kinks, but mm-hmm. the the experts call them paraphilias. And one of the most common paraphilias for people that that uh, practice autoerotic asphyxiation is cross dressing. So I began looking for articles describing men or young or young, especially young men, who were found hanged in a dress. It's really what I started looking for. And yeah. that's when I started finding them. I found one after the other after the other, and they were all very mysterious. In some cases, the uh, the writer simply had nothing to say. It was just like, yep, he was in a dress. No one knows why. So it's more or less <laughs> let go without comment. However, you also get these other ones where people have to find some kind of explanation, particularly right. when it's a person, let's say, who might have a – maybe they're not – maybe they're a person of some prominence or uh, you know, they're a very respectable person, and here they are found or, – or they come from a very respectable family. And here they right. are found, hanged, wearing uh, women's underwear, and – Okay, um, I'm going to have to get a little graphic here, but I don't know if this 
applied to um, these cases. However, in modern cases where a person is doing cross-dressing and uh, hanging, very often they are also involved in anal stimulation, so they've got something inside them. Okay. And I, and I suspect that that was probably true back then, too. And that isn't going to get into the newspapers, though. So Right, right. So what you had was you had cases. There's one in particular that um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I've got two that really go into this. But um, in, the, in these cases, both of which were young men, one of them was married and had a wife. He was a shipping clerk in North Carolina. And he was found at his office wearing uh, – he was hanged. Uh, he, was, he hanged himself with an article of women's clothing. I don't remember what. But he was wearing a dress and earrings and a pair of goggles. And the situation was just so bizarre that uh, I, I have his death certificate. And it, it was put down as homicide because they simply could not imagine it. This could have happened. It was just so strange. And uh, so one of the the explanations for autoerotic asphyxiation for people who did not know what it was, was that the person had been murdered, probably by a sex pervert, which is why I mentioned earlier about the anal stimulation thing. Mm Mm-hmm case that took place, I think it was in Queens, New York. Well, actually a little in a harbor in Queens, New York. This uh, son of a wealthy iron foundry owner, he was found dead on the family yacht, and he was wearing this this very dirty, cheap, ugly women's clothing, dressed uh, completely in the, you know, dressed fully in the outfit, sweat-stained, dirty, smelly. Uh, I think he had hanged himself from a hook in the cabin. And the police studied it, and they studied it, and they studied it, and they absolutely could not find evidence of anything other than suicide. But, now this is where you've got to think about attitudes period. His father apparently was horrified at the thought that people would think his son was homosexual. He, it's something that you find in, again, this is not something they come out and say in these articles, but they, they dance around it. You know, they refer to it yeah. in kind of euphemistically. And, the, and at the time, homosexuality was very closely aligned with, was considered very closely aligned with cross-dressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I got a book called... I, I was curious about this myself because I didn't really... Un- I-, I said to myself, well, I honestly don't know what people thought about homosexuality in the 1890s or 1920s. I just don't know. It's not right, something right. you really come across in uh, in ordinary history. So I got this book called Gay New York, which was a history of homosexuality in New York City. And apparently, like I was saying earlier, um, 
the cross-dressing was identified as that was the sign of a man who was homosexual at the time. That was the way they identified right. it. Uh, well, let me just so, let me stop and ask you though, because part of my part of my wondering is like, where? How do we know some of these weren't? I guess we don't we don't really know. It's all speculative, right? But like, how do we know some of these weren't just suicides of people who were homosexual and couldn't couldn't handle it any longer in that era? Well, you've you are um, there are giveaways. For example, there is. No evidence, first of all, that the person was homosexual. Very often they would uh, – like the man in North Carolina, he was a uh, – he was married. He, he had a child. Now, I know it's easy to say, well, that doesn't mean anything. You know, A person can have a secret right. life. But the number of paraphilias involved suggests that this was an act of – that this was a sexual act. This was not a mm-hmm. suicide. Why put on earrings? Why put on a dress? Why put on goggles? I mean, obviously, yeah. this was a sexual thing. And I think the same thing, for example, applies to this young man who killed who who died. I almost said killed himself, who died on the yacht. He was wearing an outfit that another another reason now the father as i was saying he was appalled that people might think that his son was homosexual so he hired private detectives when the police would know would were done investigating because they said there is nothing to suggest that this was a murder but the father would not accept that he said his son must have been murdered by a pervert and uh the 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 private detectives were actually able to find out where the the women's clothing had come from and uh, the father, the father said his son was first of all extremely manly. He said that a lot, and <laughs> um, and he was very, he was very, um, very physical. Physically, he was very clean. He almost was had almost a. Um, he was finicky in his cleanliness, and the idea the that son, he would yeah. put on, yeah, the idea that he would put on dirty, soiled, sweaty women's clothing, from the father's point of view, that would have simply appalled his son. But when you look at paraphilias, you know, you get these, you get uh, people who are excited by the smell, Uh, you know, they're excited by body odors, they're excited by that idea of it being dirty. Uh, That's all part of their fantasy. And that's why, for example, I don't believe that this was uh, a suicide. I think he was he was in, enjoying himself, and something went wrong. Now, again, we can't prove it, but if the police had, if the police were familiar with autoerotic asphyxiation, there would be evidence. For example, let's say that that young man in North Carolina, I believe he hanged himself from a beam. I, I think he did. Now, what you yeah. would do today is you would take a look at that beam and you would say, has it been worn? Is there evidence that it's been used for multiple hanging? You know, has he done that? Oh. Is, yeah, yeah. Is the, is the paint worn away? Is it chipped? You know, they didn't think to look at that. It, it just, you know, for example, is everything else covered with dust except there's this large area around there where it's like different layers of dust because he's been using it over and over again? You know, yeah, those are yeah. the sort of things that they just didn't think to look up. It, it just wasn't – that was not part of the uh, of the equation. And, and again, right. so 
what what I'm setting out to do is I'm setting out to find the explanations that people came up with when they did not know what autoerotic asphyxiation was, what autoerotic asphyxiation fatalities would be the right way of putting it. So, uh, number one that that I've I've given examples for so far is homicide. That uh, that there that this young man must have been the victim of some kind of sexual pervert, because no one in his family had the slightest idea that some that he was involved in this sort of thing. So, and and, and that happens today too, where where somebody will be where uh, somebody will be found involved in some very complicated kinky stuff. And the family has not got a clue. They have simply they have walled off that part of their their life completely from the rest of the family. So it's a total shock. And I yeah yeah there are similar kind of yeah there are similar kind of stories. Uh, I remember one up here like where guys uh, I guess or gals, but as you said, uh, the only story I know specifically involved the guy, but who uh, you know went to a dom. It was like a similar to this kind of. It was like dominatrix session gone wrong. Where uh, people that there are, there are, if you're ever looking for an addendum to, the, to that research, yeah, there's a lot of cases sort of like that where uh, where the, where the dominatrix ends up in trouble because they dump the body and do all kinds of. This happened up here in Massachusetts, I recall, uh, not too long ago, where uh, some some poor was, dude was died uh, in a session gone wrong, and the, the dominatrix didn't know what to do and ended up yeah. uh, like chopping up his body or something. Wow, that's that's. Um... That is a kind of a radical solution. Um, was, yeah, was, yeah. It, was it asphyxiation? I w- I'm going to assume it was something like that, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or uh, my only other guess would be like that they have a heart attack. That it's, oh, uh, that, yeah. you know, in, 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 uh, in situ in the or end. whatever you would call it. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so at some point during the, the session, you know, the, she, the person is being beaten on it. It's so titillating that they have a heart attack. So you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, well, so so it's not entirely outside of the realm of uh, of. Uh, well, it's not. It's not like it's something yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. It does happen. Right. Um, so so um, you see, that actually goes. That actually reminds me of what I was saying that about that original story about that uh, musician uh, in 18th century London who paid the prostitute to hang him, and then she was mm-hmm. arrested for murder. Had had, this, right, exactly. had the, the had the had the dominatrix just gone, you know, where she simply said, "Look, you know, this is what he was. He asked me to do this. I was doing this, and he just dropped dead." Once she probably wouldn't have gotten in any bodies, trouble. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Once you start yeah, chopping exactly. up bodies, though. <laughs> but, but I watch uh, a lot of those so, true true crime shows, and uh, it's always they always say it's, <laughs> they always say it was an accident first, and then they chop the body up, and it's like. If I've learned anything from watching those shows, it's like if somebody dies next to me by accident, I'm just calling uh-huh. the fucking cops immediately. Right. Like, yeah. I'm not even going to touch a thing. Because <laughs> it's always like, oh, I freaked. He, he died, or he died right next to me, and I freaked out, so I decided to t- drive him to a lake and throw him in the lake. Right. He died, so I ran him through the wood chipper. Yeah, exactly. So you said you're you're sort of pinning down these different explanations. You had homicide. I jumped right. in there on you. I didn't mean to cut off your train no, of thought. No, that's so, fine. Uh, that's fine. Uh, so, but so what what other explanations imagine, are they coming up with? Well, as you can imagine, the most common one is suicide. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, 
because, frankly, it looks like a suicide. And I think the exp- – I th- suspect that a lot of people – I suspect that a certain number of deaths that are called suicides were probably – uh, autoerotic asphyxiation fatalities that just went wrong. And again, since they did not know what they were looking at, they would they would um, just kind of let things go. For example, it is not common for someone to commit suicide by hanging themselves naked. That's just not something that happens very often. So... Yeah. When a person is, when, a, when especially again a man, when a man is found naked hanging himself, uh, if you don't know what autoerotic asphyxiation is, you're you're automatically going to assume that it was a suicide. And right. back th- back then, even more when, again, even the concept, you weren't even aware of the concept of autoerotic asphyxiation. So um, so suicide is, of course, the most common one. Uh, but there are others. For example, there was this young man who uh, he had been – his parents knew something was going on because they uh, – he, he was showing up at home with these red marks around his neck. And they um, – he, he said that he, he hurt his neck wrestling and um until they found him hanging naked in the uh, basement and gosh you know tim i actually this has reminded me of something that i i i should get back to remember you were asking about how how do they know it's not an actual suicide one right. one of the ways they know is that and again this this doesn't prove anything but it, it tends to show something is yeah. that is when a person is found hanged and they have put something between the rope and their neck to prevent it from leaving bruises. Somebody who's ah. hanging himself doesn't care if there are bruises. But if right. you're doing this for uh, a sexual thrill, and this is something that's kind of a part of your life, people are going to start to wonder why you have... These marks around your neck a lot, and right, right. so when when someone is found hanging and they've got a towel or uh, some kind of some kind of shield between the rope and their neck, that's another sign that uh, that it was not something they, they did not set out to die. Now, some people right. it has happened where somebody committing suicide will do that, but the percentages just are all on the side of autoerotic asphyxiation. And, you know, yeah. I should tell uh, the people listening, I am not an expert on this by any means. My, really, the sole aspect of this that I am, I am looking into is how people explained it. This is really more of an aspect of folklore than anything else. People who are experts on it um, are... They they are they are people that study uh, sexual pathologies and they are people that study causes of death. So you know those are the experts on it. I'm just somebody right. who's looking at this 
this one little aspect of it, and that is how did people explain it when they didn't know what autoerotic asphyxiation was. So back to that young man I was talking about who had the red marks around his neck, uh, because mm. that, that, it was the red marks that, that reminded me about how they will uh, put something between their throats and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the rope. Uh, anyway, he was finally found in the basement, and a cousin of his said that the boy was a member of a club and that one of the boys in this club had read in a true detective magazine that if a person is hanged and they have enough insulation between their neck and the rope, they won't die. And this is the story. And that the boys were all experimenting with this. So they were hanging themselves. This is the story he gave. So they were hanging themselves to see if it was indeed possible to hang yourself without choking to death if you put enough insulation between your throat and the rope. I think that... I suspect that the truth is that the boy who was hanging himself had told the cousin this, and uh, in case to explain Ah. those marks on his throat. That's what I think might have happened. But the newspapers came up with other explanations. For example, I think it might have been the parents or – yeah, it might have been the parents or the father that came up with this one, that the boy who who hanged himself – was found again in the basement, stark naked and hanging from his by his throat. Now, according to I believe it was the father, he thought that his son was meeting a friend of his in the basement to go swimming. And before they were going to go swimming, they would always change into their trunks in the basement. And his son thought it would be a funny prank for the friend to come in and for him to be hanging by his throat naked. That was his explanation for it. I mean, <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I wish I could explain it. But, now you know, the, that is not such an unusual explanation. Uh, one of the very early ones that uh, – one, one of the very early um, cases – the um one of the very early cases involved uh a young man who was found again uh, hanging naked and i don't remember whether he was wearing women's clothes but it was a very strange scene and they knew that he liked to read detective magazines uh and their explanation for his death was that he decided to set up a mystery that would puzzle the police. And <laughs> I thought to myself, that's commitment. If you're going to kill <laughs> yeah. yourself to puzzle the police, you are really going out of your way to uh, – you, you are hardcore. That's all I can say. Yeah. So, I mean, here yeah, you've got yeah. – We've got suicide. We've got experimenting with hanging to see how long you can hang. We've got pranks. We've got setting up a mystery to um, to baffle the police. We've got murder. And uh, another one that comes up. There's a, a, this is a, a very famous example. 
well, I mean, famous in the itty bitty world annals. of history. Oh, yeah, in, in, in the very small annals of autoerotic asphyxiation fatalities. Uh, <laughs> in that this this involved a man who was well known. I mean, not not uh, um, not as famous as somebody like uh, David Carradine, but he was a screenwriter named William Pettit. And William Pettit wrote a lot of very successful movies. Well, they found William Pettit on his yacht, and he was wearing uh, a, a complete women's outfit. Uh, he was wearing uh, makeup. I think he had a wig on, uh, the shoes, a dress. It was a sundress. Uh, and... Uh, he was hanging from a rope, uh, that uh, from a hook in the ceiling. And it was, uh, as you can imagine, it was a strange scene. And the immediate explanation was, and the one that, that uh, people, that really got spread around was, that he was a meticulous screenwriter. And the idea was that he had decided that he was going to rehearse a scene from his movie and that this must be a scene from his movie that he was working on, and he had hanged himself in women's clothing to make sure that he got everything right in the scene that he was working on. And they even they even suggested that it was because he was he was working on um, a uh, a play about the Salem witch trials, and of course you know they involved women being hanged. They didn't involve yeah. women being hanged in a sundress and uh, earrings, but that was the story that, that was put out. However, as time went on, his wife later revealed that he had been in the habit of uh, of wearing her clothes, and he would even sometimes tie himself up and just lie around the house like that. And um, he had been visiting a psychiatrist when he was found on the on on the boat, and this was in the 1940s. So I'm actually surprised that that much information got out. Um, again, you, if you uh, look up William Pettit, he has got a uh, he's got um, a uh, an entry at the IMDb with posters of his movies and things like that. Uh, yeah. So you know he was he was a high profile case, and again that was during the 1940s. And so and so another explanation to add to our list is people acting out scenes. And I I don't think he's the only example where someone says, well you know they were involved in the theater, so they were they were um, they were they were just doing that, and and something went wrong. You know it's funny you should also talk about. Um, how how can we tell if this is a case of suicide or uh or uh, accidental and I know an accident i have a clipping yeah. of a man who was 76 years old he was a very famous vaudeville female impersonator now i suspect that he was an actual transvestite even though he was married had children you know that sort of thing but he, at the age of 76, he was found dead in his room. He had tied uh, something to, a, I think it was a rope. He tied a rope to a bedstead and strangled himself in the bed. And that really does look like, and he was dressed in a complete woman's outfit. That, right. however, there was no attempt at 
covering the bruises on his neck. He was about 50 years older than most autoerotic asphyxiation cases. Uh, there was none of the other things that are present in cases of autoerotic asphyxiation. For example, very often there will be pornography, or like I said earlier, there'll be some evidence of anal stimulation going on. There will be uh, you know, other other fetish material like okay, all right, yeah, that makes sense. Women's yeah. shoes, stuff like that. None of that was present. It was just him in the outfit that he had worn when he was a female impersonator that he probably liked wearing, and that's what he chose to wear when he when he committed suicide. Uh, so again, that I I think that's a good example of how uh, how you can tell the difference. Now, I'm talking as an amateur because. The people that really do this, they will go into great detail, and they will say right. it is often difficult to tell. So I'm just going by what I see. Now, the thing you mentioned about uh, Pettit, <clears throat> well, a few things you mentioned kind of remind me of, um, I don't know, this is really modern, but I don't know if you've, if you've looked into this and it's part of your research of uh, these cases. I, maybe not necessarily because you're more interested in the explanations, but uh the the BTK killer, that was that was his big thing. He was into autoerotic asphyxiation. I think his wife caught him once, either all tie and also tying himself up uh, in in his victim's clothes. So yeah, uh, yeah. well, there's a lot yeah, of he, a lot of elements to this uh, in his story. Yeah, the, in fact, did you ever see those photographs he took of himself? Oh yeah, I've seen it, them. Yeah, I mean those are uh, I personally consider those. Yeah, I personally consider those the most disturbing photographs. Some of the most disturbing photographs I have ever seen. Um, uh, the there are strong elements of sexual masochism and sexual sadism in the makeup of people who indulge in autoerotic asphyxiation and. It also, uh, BTK, Dennis Rader, was not the only one who did that. The That man who kept those women hostage in his house, I think in Cleveland, yeah. and died in prison, he apparently died while... While taking while while doing some autoerotic asphyxiation, uh, there was a man called Michael. Uh, Michael, I think it was Michael. Uh, his last name was Crutchley. He was a sadist who um, imprisoned a woman and very slowly drained out all of her blood and drank it. And, oh God! Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Look him up, Crutchley. Uh, C R U T C H L E Y, I think. And uh, he probably died in prison uh they they found a plastic bag over his head but they think it was uh they think it was autoerotic asphyxiation uh if they don't give you a reason that means probably he didn't have pants on or uh he had his fly open or something like that and he was yeah, hanging yeah. out uh because there are just signs that you know, the, of uh, of people that that are that are doing this, so uh, so again the connection between sadism and masochism is not that unusual in this, which is another reason why it can be such a shock to people who knew the deceased as somebody that, as far as they knew, was sexually ordinary. You know, to discover that. Uh, that they had this whole life of um, 
a, fa- a whole fantasy life that they were completely unaware of, you know, involving fetishes and chains and uh, yeah, yeah. plastic, and it's just it, it's just amazing what people get into. In fact, it was uh, one of the one of the journal articles talking about. Uh, the, you know the shock of discovering somebody, uh, a man wearing women's clothes and a frogman's outfit. I mean, it's just—it's so strange. It just—it just boils over into the comical. It's just so bizarre. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? It is yeah, it is very weird. And uh, yeah, we yeah. don't kink shame though. We will. No, no, no. Whatever no, people no, are into, you know, be into it's it. It's just, uh, just don't kill yourself. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, this is like because one of those things, yeah, where it's one thing if, like, you're really into women's shoes or whatever, and that's fine. But it's like, don't, when you when you delve into, is there, are there other, at the risk of getting too dark, but is that, is, are there other things like this? Is there, like, like, something where, like, you know, you fucking electrocute yourself to... To get excited yeah, or something, or is this a... That's funny, actually, you should mention that. Because autoerotic asphyxiation uh, is so dominant that people forget that there are other kinds of uh, autoerotic practices that can result in death. And one of them is the use of electricity. Uh I'm not going to go into the details of it because, yeah, uh, yeah, first of all, I don't, yeah. think, I don't think people would believe it. Uh, but there have been cases of people who were running electricity through all all kinds of parts of their body, and something went wrong, and they they ended up electrocuting themselves. There also, <laughs> you, you know, there are people who are sexually excited by car crashes. Really. Oh yeah, yeah. There are, there are, um, there are. It's there is a truly amazing range of what people become involved in, and most of it is utterly harmless. You know, it's it's really it's. If you look at it, you simply say, "Well, that's strange," or. Uh, you know, it's unusual, but it, it who cares? It, it's like right. uh, you you open a friend's closet and you realize he has 500 pairs of shoes, uh, women's shoes. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. well, who cares? You know, it's just, that's his thing and it's harmless. Yeah, exactly. But, but then you get people like uh, Jerry Brudos, who um, he murdered a woman, then cut off her feet and put it, and then used her cut-off foot to model his shoe collection and take pictures of it. So you know oh these things do. Oh yeah, yeah. These 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 things can uh, bleed over into some very dark terrain. Now are they now uh, two things? I'll sort of put, uh, set up your qu- my question with this point first. Uh, another sort of thing. I'm I assume someone's told you about this. Or you heard about this? The movie World's Greatest Dad. Have you heard of this? No, with Robin Williams. No, I don't, uh, it's a movie. Uh, it's directed by Bobcat Goldthwait, believe it or not, and uh, he's actually mm-hmm. a pretty, really good director. Um, oh yeah, I saw his Bigfoot uh, world's movie. greatest. What's that? Yeah, he did the Bigfoot movie. Um, yeah, world's greatest dad. It stars Robin Williams, and the plot of the movie you're gonna have to watch this maybe this week <laughs> is that his son dies accidentally in an autoerotic asphyxiation uh, accident. 
and and then he and he is so aghast this is, uh, that he that he fakes it as a suicide, and then you know that's kind of the plot of the movie. Okay, so. now you see that is interesting because that points to another difficulty that people have with autoerotic asphyxiation deaths, or let's just say autoerotic fatalities. Yeah. One of the things that often happens in those cases is that a family member will find the body and they will I mean frankly if you find your father hanging from a rope dressed in women's stockings high-heeled shoes a brassiere and panties it is very possible that you will alter the scene before the police arrive right because you're embarrassed you don't want your father's memory to be, uh, you know, let's say you've got, you know, your, your mother might be there. You don't want her to ever hear about this. Uh, so right, what right, they right. do is they, they call it sanitizing the scene. And sanitizing the scene is one of the things that adds to the confusion of autoerotic asphyxiation. Because if they left the scene alone, if they didn't hide the pornography, if they didn't hide the sex toys that might very well be there, if they didn't hide the uh, photographs and all the other things like the, uh, the shoes or whatever else the person was excited by, if they didn't hide those, then it would be more obviously sexual. Right. And if it's more obviously sexual, then it's not such a mysterious death. And you can you can see it, you know, it becomes easier to explain. So and, and that still goes on as you can imagine. And that's that what I was also, gonna ask you. Yeah, yeah, it seems like yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean it's again, it's a natural response. And one of the things that um cause of death investigators do is they will tell police to go back to the family, you know, say, you're not in trouble here, but did you do anything after you found the body? Because there are things here that suggest that this might have happened. And very often they will admit to having done, you know, they will, they will have done things that uh, because yeah. they were embarrassed, they panicked. Um, sometimes it's even a religious thing. Um, yeah, you shouldn't have to. I don't think you should. Yeah, I don't think that's. It probably is somehow illegal, but it shouldn't. You know, it's totally understandable. You can probably get a pass. Yeah, on, it is. It on is. That it is illegal. You, you. Yeah. Um. It's one of those. It's one of those very gray areas where, yes, you are disturbing a death scene, but, you know, you can always use the. You if, if you find someone hanging, you should cut them down in case they're not dead. But True. When yeah. You exactly. Start, well, but when you start hiding things and stuff like that, you get into a trickier area. Right, but, right. you know, the, pro- the problem with doing stuff like that is it can lead the police to thinking maybe this was a murder. Maybe this was right, a suicide. Exactly, yeah. You know, they, yeah, they won't know that it was an accident. Or, for example, uh, very common, uh, if somebody's fly is open, they'll zip it up. They'll push their stuff back in and they'll zip it up. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's the stuff a family member wouldn't do. No one else would do that, but you know they they just they just don't know what to do. It's such a shock. So again, there that is another um, that is another aspect of uh, of why this can be such such a mysterious thing uh, for family members, the police, the public, and all that. Um, 
going back to the idea of odd explanations, uh, or at least explanations because the situation is so odd. Um, uh, another example I have, and this one is not typical autoerotic asphyxiation, although I think that's what was happening, was this doctor who was found in, um, I think it was Michigan. Uh, I, I have all my, you know, I have all my clippings. I can give you the exact oh, yeah, stuff. Yeah. But he was found naked in his office. He had these things called diathermy pads that were uh, around his middle. Now, diathermy pads are used, um, what you do is you you run some electricity through them. It helps people heal. Uh, it's still used. Okay. It's, it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate uh, treatment. But he had them tied around himself with, with uh, some kind of a twine or cord. And he was naked in his x-ray room. Uh, his head was under a blanket, and he was holding a container of something called ethyl chloride, which is an anesthetic. So, oh, and there was a mirror and a loop and and some kind of some kind of uh, looped rope or something. They are very vague on it in the uh, in the in the uh, descriptions. Now. Yeah. The most common – this was 1939, I think. Pretty sure it was 39 or 41. It was, I know it was, it was around the time of the war. Yeah. So he was very respectable, very well-liked. In fact, um, you can still – there were all sorts of newspaper articles about him because he was very involved in sports and athletics, and he was the local – sports teams doctor and you know, or there's like all these anecdotes about him. So he was he yeah. was well known. And uh his wife was the before he married her, she was the Michigan Blossom Queen. So, you know, these were these were seriously respectable people. Anyway, right, right. The the only explanation they could come up with was the most reasonable explanation they could come up with was that um he had been involved in some kind of experiment and that the experiment had gone wrong and that he died. That was the first explanation. Uh, finally, the expert who had come in from the FBI to look at it, all he could think of was that the doctor was treating himself <coughs> excuse me, with the diathermy pads and there was a burn underneath one of the pads that had it was a pretty bad burn on his body and that when the doctor got this burn he ran into his lab and he got the ethyl chloride and he, it in order to dull the pain and he took yeah. too much of it and he died that was the explanation that he came up with but when you look at it from the perspective of autoerotic asphyxiation, you can say to yourself, well, let's see, he had the blanket over his head. What he was probably doing was he was sniffing the ethyl chloride. He was probably letting the fumes fill that area uh, of the blanket, and he was asphyxiating yeah. himself with the fumes. He had these diathermy pads on. Now, they were around his abdomen, and... One of the things that they pointed out was that the diathermy pads had these little snaps to hold them on. But the doctor had 
the doctor had supplemented those, again, with some kind of a cord. Now, why would he have done that? Well, if it was autoerotic asphyxiation, what he might have done was he might have tied them very good and tight to make it harder for him to breathe. So here he is. Ah. He's got... He's got this ethyl chloride with the blanket over his head, so he's got the fumes going. He's got his mid he's got his midsection all constricted. I'm not sure that that would affect your breathing because to my mind that would be over the you know, over the chest, but yeah, it would yeah. fit into the it would fit into the bondage thing, which is a big part of uh of um autoerotic asphyxiation. In fact, some people tie themselves up in ways it just doesn't seem possible that they could have done it themselves. Uh, But again, so I think that that might have been part of it and that the burn that was underneath might have been deliberate because it is not unusual for people that that get involved with these things to burn themselves with cigarettes and and, uh, other things like that. I suspect that he was watching himself in that mirror he might have been hanging himself with that loop. You know, it's all very vague. But then he stood, yeah. but then he decided to use the ethyl chloride, and he was probably masturbating while using the ethyl chloride. But the but the fumes got too much, and it killed him. And yeah. it it again without the, without knowing what autoerotic asphyxiation is, you've got to come up that they came up with this very very unlikely explanation involving burns and running around and accidentally overdosing on ethyl chloride. It's just so elaborate and so unlikely. And the um, the uh, the autoerotic asphyxiation explanation covers everything. And it's yeah. all very neat and very simple. I mean, well, it's not simple because, you know, again, this is, I can't prove it, but it looks that way to me. You know, it looks that way right, to this right. amateur. Now, when did they figure out? It sounds like this was kind of like this. This was sort of like a, I don't. Even, I wouldn't call it an urban legend, but it was like something kind of that was passed around, uh, you know, in private or whatever uh, in the underground. Are you, ask, are you asking how people figured this out? Yeah. yeah. When did the they When that... did they figure this out that this was that this was a thing? Yeah. And 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 so now that these deaths aren't quite as mysterious anymore. Well. Uh, you see, oh, I thought you were asking how did the people that practiced it find out about it? Well, I don't uh, because would you know that. I mean, <laughs> that was well, that, that's something I wouldn't even fathom uh, to guess because I, I, but but maybe you would know. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's no, some inclination. I, I so I guess my my question well, was how did the how did the experts eventually come to that conclusion that this was a thing that people do that sometimes goes terribly wrong? But if you if you have insight into how these people that that were practicing it uh, learned. I'd be definitely interested in that as well. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just I can just tell you what I've read in, in the in the journal articles. But uh, as for the as for uh, again, I think a lot of it started. It, it it really began to come together in the early 1980s, and uh, well, like that's uh, where they had to figure out. They, they had these uh, deaths that needed explanation, and uh, it was when people like Hazelwood and Dietz and a few others began to seriously look into these odd deaths, and there were these insurance questions. Right, so, right. you know, it demanded it demanded an explanation, and 
since so much more is known about people's erotic practices now, it it I you see I I can't really say it was this case and that case that that right, right. that you know that got people going because I don't know the history of it that well. Again, that has not been the part of it that I've been looking at, but mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to have been a cumulative thing that uh, really began to emerge in the early 1980s, st- around the same time that serial killer profiling was was becoming a big thing too. Uh, and uh, again, yeah, okay. a lot of the same a lot of the same people were involved. So it's a curious it's it's a curious uh, coincidence, or it could be that the studying of death scenes was becoming more uh, sophisticated. And as people were studying murder scenes, they were also studying suicide scenes. And they were approaching them in a more sophisticated, less less prejudiced way. So if a person is found hanging, that's one thing. That does not automatically mean suicide. If, for example, they are found hanging, and the and the they didn't hang themselves with uh, an electrical wire, which is very common, you know, like uh, fl- wire flex, those sorts of things. They didn't hang themselves yeah. with a clothesline. They hang themselves with a stocking. Now that suggests right. something more than simply committing suicide. So I suspect, again, that it probably came out of a more sophisticated approach to death scenes, most likely because of uh, their work they did in serial murder. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. John Douglas, in, who was another one of these uh, the profilers. Oh, the mind hunter, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said in, in one of his books, uh, if you want to know the artist, you have to look at their canvas, which was his which was his. Uh, artistic way of saying if you want to understand uh, the killer, you have to look at what the killer does. And I'd be willing to guess that people like Hazelwood and Dietz took that same thinking and applied it to suicide death scenes. If you want to know the person who committed suicide, look at the way they did it. If the way they did it does not seem to indicate suicide, but something else, then maybe this wasn't suicide. Maybe this was an accident. Which, yeah, which is again the, what, what these what we're, yeah. what we're talking about. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it would stand to reason too that, like, at some point, maybe it maybe it was just like too taboo to really bring up, and at some point that kind of, you know, the people's perspectives changed to the point where they were they were talking to try to figure these things out and they were like, Well what about you know, I heard that people do this and then all of a sudden it kinda of became like, all right, now we can now we can talk about this. You know, there's a little more sexual liberation or something like that, uh, even well, when it comes you, to you auto know, auto erotic asphyxiation. I I will accept certainly the idea that people were willing to talk about sex and sexual practices. But the really odd thing is that even the people who specialized in odd sexual practices didn't seem to be aware of autoerotic asphyxiation. Uh, Will, William, oh, wow. Wilhelm, Kraft, Wilhelm Kraft Ebbing, who wrote the book Psychopath, Psychopathia Sexualis, which is 
like the first major, major book on odd sexual behavior, he never mentions it. He apparently didn't know what it was, and he's got things in there that'll curl your hair. Um, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't think that uh, Masters and Johnson ever mention it either. It's, Very interesting. It, again, these, yeah, I, I, these things were just not known. It was one of those it, – it, it wasn't even a subculture because it's not like these people had contact with each other. Um, right, exactly. Most, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently most people that became involved in it, you know, we were talking earlier, well, how did they ever even know about about this connection? And apparently it, uh, people f- – there is that thing where a lot of young people will do that thing where they do the fainting game, where they'll hold their breath till they pass out. Well, apparently some people find that pleasurable, and they will elaborate on that. Uh, there are again. There is the um, there is the tradition of of erection and ejaculation for men that are hanged. So there's a connection right there. It's it's a bit of a mystery, really, how anyone finds this out for themselves. But they do, and they elaborate on it to a degree that can really be astonishing. You know, it's um, for some people. You see, uh, that was actually another thing I was looking at because. It's such an odd practice that I was wondering if it has its own, you know, is it considered like a, its own, um, does it have its own category when they categorize these things? But no, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It's just considered, it's just considered an aspect of sexual masochism because um, there are smothering, suffocation, controlling someone else's breathing. Those are all practices that are recognized as part of sadomasochism. So it's just yeah. put in with those. And again, one of the things that, that really separates the modern investigators from uh, those just a few years ago is what's available online. So you've got investigators who put together these uh, online questionnaires and they will ask, they will go to websites dedicated to uh, autoerotic asphyxiation, and instead of trying to figure it out from the death scene, they will just contact, they will just talk to people who do it. You know, yeah, that was, I was going to kind of mention that. I figure there must be, because before you were saying, I think we were talking like, it, it doesn't seem like there was any, sub. Like, they weren't all connected, you know, there wasn't any sort of network of, of this. No. But now, in modern times with the internet, I imagine, exactly. I wouldn't want to even look into Look into it, oh, yeah. but oh, I imagine oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a group for everybody on online. Yes. So I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure there are practitioners who, um, you know, share tips and tricks and and uh, That's and, and that kind of thing. Wrong. And and what's that? Oh, I'm positive. Yeah, I'm the, sure of it. But, yeah, uh, I haven't looked. But. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you see, I I haven't looked either because I have to be careful in that I don't want to get too distracted from what I'm working on. Right. And what I'm working on again is explanations because it is a fascinating subject, and yeah. it is so easy to get to get sidetracked by uh, you know this person's this the, these fantasies that are so bizarre, so elaborate, 
that uh, I, you know, I just my jaw is hanging open because I, I simply can't believe that people can have such elaborate sexual fantasies that are involved, you know, that 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 uh, are expressed in 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 uh, their autoerotic um, behavior. It's just it's astonishing to me, um, and. Again, I am trying to stick to the period before anyone knew what was going on. That right. way, um, right. that way, I, I, again, I can look at this, and it still happens today. People will, uh, people will commit. They, they will, they will die accidentally during autoerotic asphyxiation, and some very improbable explanations are brought forth. I mean, there was one case, this is not recent, this was, um, this was actually back in the 50s, where they found this young man, he was an engineer, so like most engineers, he did things, um, he set up, well, I, I, it's hard to even describe, he was wearing a bikini, he hanged himself, he had chains wrapped around his body, and he set something up called uh, an escape device. Now, that's another way of differentiating between suicide and autoerotic asphyxiation because took, people – I'm going to stop you one second. You took the word – you took the thought right out of my head because that's what I was going to yeah. ask you. Is this another thing? Is that something that one would assume if this was something you were going to do that you would have uh, some escape – some way of getting out of this fix that you put yourself into in case it right. goes wrong. So I assume right. that and, is like the and, knife, like the like like the guy's exactly. knife like from right. the beginning. Well, this this guy had set up something far more elaborate. He had locked all the doors, which is natural when you're, you know, you're you're planning to have your autoerotic asphyxiation party. Uh, <laughs> so, and uh, he again, he was chained. He was in a bikini. He was. Um, he was found hanging this is this is not unusual he was found hanging in such a way that he was actually just like inches above the floor and he had set up a uh, a device where a burning candle when the candle burned far enough would burn through a string and release a key that would allow him to uh open up the, the chains because they were locked. Yeah. But apparently he messed up on the hanging and he died um he died from 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 uh, strangulation and and never had a chance to uh to unlock the chains. So again, here he is in this in the middle of this uh this large living room and yeah. he is Done up in this, tr I mean, it, it must have been a bizarre sight to see, you know, see this man in again a bikini and chains and ropes and and uh, all of these things. And the explanation that they gave, and this is in the 1950s now. Again, they went back to it must have been a prank that went wrong. You know, it's like a prank where you a prank where you've got a string to be burned through by a candle to release a key to un to open the padlocks that are that are uh, keeping the chains around you while you're hanging. Yeah, that's like a yeah a really really kinky Rube Goldberg. 
Yeah, that that we're talking about uh, again. This is commitment. So, yeah, exactly. uh, like yeah, I said, yeah. I I have got a a big collection of these, and uh, I'm not going to go into all of them because some of them I want to save for my lecture. No, no, no. I, yeah, uh, I was going to pivot you uh, off of the uh, into another realm in a moment. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, that's fine. Well, we've still got a half hour, so we can talk about anything you like. <coughs> what? <coughs> so. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, That's right. Now, have you – now, obviously, I've seen you say you were, like, working on a lecture about this. Uh, have you thought, like, is this a challenge for you to uh, find a venue necessarily to present this kind of information? Because I, I find it fascinating. So I want – when I saw you talking about it a lot on Facebook, I was like – uh, I was like, if, I think I said to you in the original message, like, if you don't, if you don't mind giving away your, your stuff before it's published, I want to hear <laughs> about this, about this research. Um, so, but have yeah, you, no, have I, you I sort of talking about it? No, no, I know, <laughs> I know, I really appreciate it. It's, it's fascinating how much, uh, how much you've looked into this and and what you've uncovered and everything. Have you sort of, a, is there a venue for this? Uh, to publish, you think, other than maybe in a book or something? Oh yeah, yeah. I can, I can get this. Uh, first of all, the uh, the lecture, the lecture is going to be a little tough. Uh, I can probably, I can probably speak at maybe one of the Fortean groups because I'm just, you know, so I'm, I'm just such a, I'm, I'm well known. I'm friends with all these people. And right, again, right. I I I call myself strange but true, uh, you know. Is and uh, what I'm really looking into is this is an aspect of folklore, because that's what you call. I mean, these these are what are called folk explanations, because these are not the ex, these are not the explanations created by somebody who would be an expert in sexual pathology. Right. So these this is an example of folklore. So as folklore, I can talk about it in front of Fordian groups. Uh, obviously, I can't talk about this at the public library. Uh, because, right, right, yeah. Uh, I just will not be allowed to. But there is a venue called the Morbid Anatomy Library in uh, New York City where uh, I, I, it's really the only place I'm, I can talk about a lot of the things that interest me, like uh, like suicide by decapitation and things like that. I, I gave a lecture on that there, um, and I'm sure that they'll they'll allow me to do a um, they'll allow me to give a lecture uh, on it there. And the nice thing about the Morbid Anatomy Library is I can use the I can show pictures there I can't show anywhere else. So. Um, yeah, I'm sure they'll they'll let they'll they'll be interested in it, and uh, you know the people uh, like the the group in Baltimore. I have a feeling they'd be interested yeah, Fort in Fest, something yeah. like this. Yeah, I mean when I did Fort Fest, I I gave a uh, a lecture on on people who had screw on goat horns, and that's certainly not paranormal. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's no, I was, I was just wondering what if there was. I wasn't even necessarily wondering if it, if it was paranormal. It was just like, where would you? <laughs> like, about, I guess the morbid, the morbid one you're talking about would. Uh, yeah, that would work for sure. They're they're, yeah. they're perfect. They're perfect. But uh, you know, if it's uh, if it's the right kind of group, it's uh, it's very difficult for me because I go into the stuff with a sense of humor, and some people refuse to acknowledge the fact that this is funny, and I do. 
Yes, I know someone died, and that's terrible. But the circumstances are so strange. How can you not see the the absurdity of it? It's just so bizarre. I, uh, and 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 I and I will not pretend that it's not. You know, I'm not going to stand there with a uh, with a grim face when, when they talk about somebody who's you know wearing uh, who's dressed in his his. Uh, like a sundress and makeup and uh, shoes. and it, I'm sorry, that's just strange, and it's so strange it's funny. And, uh, I, I, and, I, and I will not pretend it's not. So, you know, that, that can be a problem for some people. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. It is, and, and a lot of this stuff I feel like you have to have a sense of humor, as long as you're not like, you know... Uh, Making I, I I don't know I don't think you're like making light of the people. It's just sort of the circumstances that is the the circumstances. That is the thing that yeah. Is, I mean, you know, yes, it's, like it's a, we don't. It's the, the people themselves are the more mystery. Like like we were saying, it's like we don't even you don't even know how how they got interested. You know, they're they, you'd love to talk to them. You know what I mean? It's like they, they have mm-hmm. a I'm sure a very interesting story. It's the circumstances that yeah. are amusing in a sense. Yeah. And and you know again for the uh, the whole Fortean aspect of it, uh, I, I was talking to somebody one day about uh, another lecture I gave about this man who had checked into a hotel and he uh, brought in in pieces this uh, gigantic axe which he proceeded to screw together and uh, it had a big hinge on it and he uh, he attached the hinge to the floor and he set the axe up with a string that burned through it you know he had a candle to burn through it and then he lay down on the floor put his head in a box of chloroform and uh, he let himself go into a bit of a stupor and eventually the the candle burned through the string and this gigantic axe lopped his head off in this hotel room now i'm sorry but first of all that's funny Second of all, that's at least as strange as it raining frogs. Probably strange. Oh yeah, for sure. I don't know how I don't know how frogs fall out of the sky, but human behavior is so odd that it it puts some of these things that we're told are um, you know it puts so much of the paranormal to shame, and these are people you can talk to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, uh, it, now here's a kind of odd question. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I was thinking about this uh, a couple years ago when uh, when they caught the they caught this notorious serial killer. I guess he's going to plead guilty on Monday. Uh, the the Golden State Killer. They caught him through like DNA mm-hmm. uh, genealogy things, and um, because <laughs> because I'm a bad person, I thought to myself. Uh-huh. I thought to myself, oh, man, you know, this fucking DNA is going to ruin serial killers. Like, it's just not going to be any more serial. <laughs> this is like a thing of the past, man. This is a... This is well, a you know, I was, it, I was it, just sad for a moment. Yeah, I shouldn't be. As I said, as a, as a bad person, I, I was like, well, no, I guess we should want serial killers to go extinct. I don't know, but, you know. Well, you know, it's it's a terrible thing, but the fact of the matter is that they have done horrible things, and yet we love reading about horrible things. We are fascinated by horrible things. Anybody that says they they aren't, well, they, a few of them might be telling the truth, but most of them aren't. 
it is fascinating. And to see something that has fascinated us for so many years disappear is it's going to produce mixed feelings. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, the, the odd thing about serial killing, though, is it seems to be on the wane anyway. You know, we went through a period of uh, a beginning in the 70s and continuing through the 90s when it, it serial killing just exploded. And yeah. then it, it has been waning slowly ever since. I mean, the Golden State Killer has just been caught, but he was active in the 70s. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right, there hasn't the been... La- yeah, just, yep, yep, we're on the same train of thought here, yeah. Like, what was the yeah, last... I'm- the- DC Sniper, and that was a completely different kind of serial killing. But that was the only... Yeah. Thing even in the 2000s, I can in the, since the new millennium that I can think of that like mm-hmm. like a new serial killer. Well, I guess there's one on Long Island they think, but they're not sure. So that's oh, the only well, other one yeah. I know of. Yeah, I mean there are there are still serial killers. I mean they haven't gone away, and they're still horrible, right, and right. they're still you know they're still dangerous. But uh, the scary part is there are, there are, yeah there aren't any famous ones right now because they're either presumed dead or whatever because they did all their all their bad stuff in the 70s and 80s or whatever or. Or uh, they're under the radar. We don't know, you know, we don't know it's a serial killer. I think that's something yeah. the FBI said once, that, like, there's, like, a dozen or two dozen serial killers operating at any time in the country or something. It's like, Jesus. Right. Well, you know, it, it's just that uh, cultures go through, they they have their own kinds of fads. Now, it's it, it, it's... It seems strange to describe something like serial killing as a fad, but... Things like that are. I mean, school shootings are a fad. I, I, I don't know how else to to describe it. It's something that becomes extremely meaningful for a while, and a lot of people get involved in it, and it seems like it's the most important thing in the world, and it just fades away, and people stop doing it. Why that well, happens, I, I, I couldn't this. say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, sur- I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm going to miss it. I'm just saying it seems to happen yeah, right. that way, where it, you know these things are fads and they come and go. If you look through old, if you spend as much time looking through old newspapers as I do, you will find <laughs> plenty of examples of people of mass shootings, and they're local news. They didn't become national news. You know, somebody shot five or six people, and it's on page two. And it, you know, it's it was a serious local story, but it wasn't national news. Yeah. And then things happen. There's there'll be a, like a high profile case, and then another high profile case on top of it, and it snowballs. And then people who have a lot of problems will say, "Oh, this is one way I can express my anger," and then you know they'll take it up, and and it becomes uh, it becomes the latest kind of fad of violence and that's the way it seems to work and serial killing seems to be at the end of its uh, that fad seems to be fading away it'll come back in another form yeah but the Ted Bundy style is, is gone it's, that's fading away yeah the end of an era and no one's, yeah no one's going to miss it a bit you know, it's, no, it's kind no. of interesting. 
it's it's interesting just as a, a symbol. Uh, they've got this man. I think his first name is Samuel, but Little Samuel Little. Um, yeah. The man who they believe murdered 93 women. Well, he might very well be the United States' most prolific serial killer, and he's he's an old man, and he's going to be, he's you no know, he's never going to leave prison. He is, uh, I believe, he's suffering from senility, and uh, I think he kind of represents the way the cycle is coming to an end. And yes, yeah, there I are think so. Be, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there will be more, of course, but. It, it's right, going to right. change. It's going to be something else. The same way that school shootings are going to change, they're going to change, and all of these things, violence goes through its own kinds of phases, just the way things in the paranormal do. The way, you know, like, um, remember when abduction was the big thing. Everyone was talking yeah, yeah, about yeah. abduction. It really seemed like it was... Uh, you know, this was the this was the big thing in the paranormal, and then it started to get a little crazy with, uh, you know, giant motherships circling the earth, and they're 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 abducting hundreds of thousands of people every year. They just don't know <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was getting so bizarre that finally it just kind of faded away. And it'll be back in another form, but you know, again, these these things are cyclical. Whether it's violence yeah, or, it par- or the paranormal. Way. Yeah, it seems that way. It seems that way. Um, so has there uh, that we we went off on a great tangent there on serial killers? Has there been? Is there anything? I guess this is the part where I, I had a, like a sort of might catch you off question, where it's like you're the historian of the strange. But is there any sort of like recent story that's kind of caught your eye where it's you, you kind of feel like this is if this if you know if this if I had picked up a book from you know the early 1900s and read this story it, it would fit in with my milieu if you will like is there anything oh, in the yeah. in the contemporary yeah. age in recent years that you've been like this this will be something for the future historians of the strange. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that happens all the time. Usually things involving cannibalism. I love a good cannibalism story. Um, Cannibalism, beheading. um, For some reason, my books always end up full of beheadings. I don't know why. I have no particular interest in decapitation, but my books are full of them. Uh, So, yeah, there's always strange stories that appeal to me. uh, and, and of course, it's not just—it's not just violence. It's also uh, the, the, in the paranormal. I love poltergeist stories. I, uh, you know, the, there are uh, Bigfoot is going through a very interesting phase right now, where you know you've got people who are talking about Bigfoot is a shamanic creature that is connecting us to. Uh, higher realities and they're connected, you know, they're interdimensional beings and all that stuff. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. I I really I'm not going to say I believe it, but I find it fascinating how it's almost becoming a kind of a religious thing. To me think that Bigfoot is going to be going through a change too. Yeah, yeah. I think you you may be talking in part about my buddies uh Josh Cutchin, uh Timothy Runner, they uh 
they just put out a book uh, sort of talking about no, them. No, I, yeah. I, I wasn't actually talking about them. There, there, oh. there are, uh, they're the sane ones. There are the other ones who, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Josh Cutchins and uh, and, and Renner, uh, the two of them, what they're doing is chronicling it. You know, they're yeah. saying, you know, this is what these people believe, and you know, we this this fits into folklore patterns. This fits into the history of this. Oh, so you're and, talking and more about it. people that kind of like. <laughs> I'm talking about that, the people that, that believe it. Ah. You know that that is what I find. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, this is. Uh, 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 there was one guy. I, I I honestly don't know how his last name is pronounced. Lapsaritis, Lapsaritis. Um, oh, I, okay. Yeah, I'm all aware of this character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've read two of his books, and in them he talks about how he is in psychical communication with uh, with aliens and Bigfoot. And that Bigfoot is a race of interdimensional extraterrestrial beings, and that they perform healing on him, and that they are they are um, higher spiritual beings. And uh, again, this has nothing to do with whether I believe it or not, but yeah. it's just it's a fascinating development. And you know you get you people like Rene de Hinden, they hated Lapsaritis. He said, "You know, I want to hear about the Bigfoot out in the woods. I don't want to hear about the Bigfoots in his imagination." Uh, <laughs> but you know, again, this is a part of it. This is like a new age development in the in, in the Bigfoot lore. I, I have actually been unfriended on Facebook by somebody who. Uh, Got uh, upset at me because I didn't refer to Bigfoot as the forest people, you know. Um, I was just I was trying to have a genuine discussion with them about it, but he was very offended because he's one of these people who believes he is in psychic connection with higher beings. Oh boy! Well, I just, it reminds me of like the people who uh, this is like my Bigfoot pet peeve is the is the because this is something kind of emerged in recent years. Maybe connected kind of what you're talking about. The people who are like. Who commune with Bigfoot? Who say yeah. like that? That Bigfoot like just comes into their backyard every <laughs> two or three times a yeah. week, and they talk to it, and they give it apples and shit. And it, like mm-hmm. they just drive that 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 those folks just drive me up the wall because it's like, look, the rest of us are trying <laughs> we're trying to find this thing, so uh-huh. like. <laughs> Quippy. I don't believe them. I don't believe them that Bigfoot's traipsing through their backyard three times a week, and it's just frustrating because I'm like, if if that's true, like just show us a shred of evidence, and then you can go right. back to traipsing with Bigfoot. I don't even, you uh, know, but I, uh, habituators or something, don't they? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go, yeah, Bigfoot cohabitate with Bigfoot. Like they live yeah. among the Bigfoot, and it's like, no, you, first of all, no, you don't. And, right. and second, and second, if you do, by some slim chance, provide some evidence, and then uh, go, go on to Radio your way. Shack. Yeah, go to Radio Shack, buy a few cameras, buy a motion detector. Yeah, it, but you know, again, don't look at it as you, you see. To my mind, that's kind of the wrong way to approach it. No, I mean, is are they really? Do they really have a flesh and blood Bigfoot 
in their backyard that you know, that's eating the apples they're leaving for them, and it's leaving them presents in return. I seriously yeah. doubt it. So let's not look at that. Let's look at the question of why is where did this come from and what does it mean? And yeah. that's and to my mind, you see. If I had to really explain what it is I do, what I write about, it's probably folklore. And so, again, what what does this mean? Why have we reached this point in in uh, in the history of Bigfoot that now people are habitual? You know, they're calling themselves habituators. Uh, what is the symbolic reasoning of it? What is what are they getting out of it? And and I'm not calling them liars. And I'm not, you know, I think that's such a waste of time when you get these skeptics who say things like, it didn't happen, so it doesn't matter. No, maybe it didn't happen. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Right. Obviously, it's meaningful to these people. And obviously, it's meaningful to all the people who bought their book. So let's let's consider this. What does it mean? I, I haven't thought about habituation. I, you know, this is something I uh, that I haven't really looked at. But you know, when I was when I was writing about Ape Canyon, for example, and I realized yeah. that it that it was it was a, a magical treasure hunting legend. Suddenly, it, it it developed a whole new meaning, and it it fit into um. It, what it did was it took this traditional belief and it moved it into the early 20th century. So obviously this is a meaningful story to people if they insist on – if they're still telling it and they're giving it a whole new look. You know, it, yeah. They're revising it so that it fits the 20th century. So again, I haven't thought about habituation, but I want to know why it's meaningful, why these people are doing it, and, and why – other people are responding to it. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I see your perspective. I like that. Yeah, yeah I think you've it's opened a lot my more eyes valuable. here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, look. Do I again? Do I think they're doing it? No, I really don't. I seriously doubt that if I'm in their backyard and I've got and I'm waving an apple around, I seriously doubt that a Bigfoot's going to come out of the woods and grab. Well, you don't throw the baby think, out with the bathwater. You you use this to contextualize what it, what it might mean. Well, you know, again, it's I think it's an interesting question and one worth asking because let's face it, anyone who has been involved in the paranormal for any length of time, you've noticed that a lot of them go crazy after a few years. That's because I think they reach a point where they say, "Well, let's see. I've been involved in this for 25 years, and what have I solved? What have I learned? Nothing and nothing." So, I've wasted my life. Another way of looking at it is saying, Okay, we're talking about people. What can we learn about people from this, you know, from from what's happening? And I think that that's valuable and I think it's a more, I don't know, humanistic way of dealing with it and I think it's a great way not to go crazy. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. Uh yeah. we're well, heading up toward the end. Oh, God. Did I cut you off? No, no. What did you say? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, we're heading in, into the end here. So what do you have? Uh, this is kind of like an obligatory question, I guess. And, and I hope you don't mind. We may bleed over like five minutes into the into the post uh, thing. Um, 
just because I'm terrible at timing these things out. But so, so we're heading towards the end here. What do you have going on? And, and you know, the obligatory question uh, during this time, like, how are you holding up in the in the pandemic? Is everything all right? Are you doing okay? Um, you know, how how have you oh. experienced this? Oh, for me. And what's next for you? Obviously, what's that? Oh. The- this lockdown is nothing for me. It's more or less my normal day. The only thing that's changed is I have to wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. And apart from that, uh, oh, well, also I, I resent the fact that I can't I, – I usually do a lot of writing in diners and restaurants and things like that. I get a lot of writing done in those places. But I've adapted uh, very nicely to writing at home for the first time in years. Uh, I'm enjoying that. Um, the – uh, again, the pandemic has really not interfered with me very much, so it's just uh, it's just been a little more quiet than usual. That, that's been about it. What were the other questions? Well, what do you have going on next? What do you uh, uh, obviously? Well, I, I'm putting. The, what what, what I'm gave putting me pause together. and made me think of the pandemic was it's like, well, you're not gonna, you're not going anywhere to speak anytime soon, I assume. So, uh, you know, what? Well, that's that's. Generally, people uh, do with the uh, in the plugs part, which made me think of the pandemic. Well, we, so. you know, there are the uh, there are places are doing the Zoom uh, lectures. So yeah, I, suspect I, I suspect I'll probably end up doing that. I, I really would like to do more lecturing. It's just, uh, you know, it's always the problem of of uh, paranormal groups and and strange but true groups. They're just always broke. And yeah. I just I just want to break even, you know. I don't uh I don't want to I uh, I know I'm not going to make money uh lecturing these groups, but I don't want to actually lose money doing it. So right, right. um so you know, I if I if I can break even, I'll speak anywhere. Um so uh, you know, I I am hoping to do that again. And and to tell you the truth, I actually really enjoy it. I I love meeting the people who are into this stuff and I it, it one of the great things has been getting to meet the people, the other writers, um, you know, people like you who I've I, I knew about for years, but I never ever got to meet. It's just uh, meeting, you know, meeting Linda Godfrey finally, you know, meeting Lauren Coleman, Patrick Weege. It's just been so great to actually meet the people who I've been reading for years. Yeah, that's the and, real. Uh, yeah, that's one of the highlights I mean, it, of these things, for sure. It really is. And there's also a lot of drinking that goes on, which is good, too. I know. I know about that. Yeah, yeah well, I look yeah. back not drinking, but I remember we uh, – and, again, I don't – this is kind of like goes <laughs> – now I'm doubly making myself laugh. This goes back to the autoerotic asphyxiation topic in a sense where it's like we don't – I'm not laughing at people. I'm laughing at circumstances, but uh, – I was going to say, I won't ever forget, we hung out outside the hotel, and what made me laugh, what set off all those laughs was the, we were waiting to go to Dave and Buster's for the, for the, right. for, for the Ford Fest. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I just always laugh about the Dave and Buster's part, because it's like so, so out of the ordinary <laughs> and perfect, yeah. and perfect for, a, for a paranormal uh, convention. But, uh, but yeah, looking back on it, when we, we, we hung out, I just remember we, we hung out like outside that, that uh, hotel in Baltimore, waiting to get the the someone to take us to Dave and Buster's, but yeah, it was a fun what, experience. Just ch- you and I chatted for like fifteen minutes or twenty yeah. minutes or whatever, how long it took the car to get us, and uh, that was that, that was one of my best memories from the trip to Baltimore. Honestly, that was a, oh, that's I had a really funny fun you time should say that chatting. because 
it's funny you should say that because I felt the same way. It was just so great to have a bit of quiet time talking to people who have the same interests. And it's not, you know, I know that the people who who go to these things, you know, they think we're probably talking about like the paranormal and all the great secrets we know about it, but <laughs> it's actually the life of, you know, what it's like to do this all the time. It's a different experience than people might think. You know, yeah, it's, for sure. Uh, it, it's, I don't, I don't know that it's interesting or not to somebody who doesn't do it, but, you know, talking. I've always thought it was funny that whenever you get writers together, they never talk about fascinating stuff. They always talk about their royalties and how much their yeah. royalties suck. Um, no matter what it is they write about, but <laughs> it was just—it's just so fun to sit and talk to people who know what it's like to, you know, interview people who have had extraordinary experiences. Um, to meet, you know, to go to the places where these things happened, you know, to, who, who, I mean, there's, there's our audiences, there are, there's our readers and our listeners, and they, they get really interested because we do these things that they can't do because they're leading yeah. normal lives. You know, we're, you know, we're off doing the things that that they would love to do. I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who follow my. Um, who follow my my uh, historian of the strange page, who wish they could do what I do, which is right, which is just right. comical to me, because uh, you know anyone can do what I do as, as long as you're patient <laughs> and you don't mind and yeah, you don't exactly. mind poverty. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a long talk, John Tenney and I, about this kind of thing uh, last time on the show. People trying to be famous in this. It's like don't. <laughs> There's don't. nothing to be gained from being famous in this crazy you're not, field. You're sure. not going to be rich. You're not going to be famous. Uh, if if that happens to anyone, it's going to happen to the good-looking actor that they hire to lead the uh, to lead the fake real-life ghost hunting show. Exactly. It's not going exactly. to. Yeah, that's that's going to be the person that it happens to, which is fine. It's just that's the way of the world. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I said too. Yeah, it's just a, part of the thing is too. It's like who the fuck wants. Like I'm, I've reached an age in my life now where it's like I don't really want to be famous, like like paranormal famous or even famous at all. It's like this is, that's just too stressful. I like things the normal, nice and quiet now, man. Mhm. Yep. Oh, I understand that. It's I don't really think uh, fame is is an issue, and for, for uh, most of us, I mean, I am shocked <laughs> when somebody when somebody knows who I am. In fact, when somebody has c- comes up to me and says they've read my book. I'm actually a little uncomfortable. It's like, oh my God, you mean you read my book? Why would you do that? Yes, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, I. It, it's almost. I'll confess almost to being. Seems... Yeah. I, I, see, you're a nice person. I confess that I, I'm probably the cruelest to my most <laughs> my most ardent fans. Because uh, as soon as they're like, oh, I, really, I listen to every show, it's like. Okay, there's clearly something wrong with this person, so I need to keep away from them. If they listen to every one of my shows. Like, oh my god. Do you have something better to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man. But I love them all, so um oh, on yeah. that note we gotta we gotta call it a night here. Um so I will I will let you get going. I wanna thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I know we could talk oh, all night, but I'm trying pleasure. to uh, be professional and cut things to a tight sure. two hours ish. So Sure. 
any time uh, you want to do this again, let me know. I've always I've always got something going on. Absolutely, yeah. I love the conversation, man. I hope uh, um, I hope folks got a lot out of it. I was fascinated by it. Uh, where oh, else glad. can you? Like I said before, it's like where I didn't want to pat myself on the back, but it's like what other venue? Can, what other venue can do? Can you do this in-depth discussion on autoerotic asphyxiation? But here on Banal of America, and uh, at, at, at the morbid place. So, uh, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was fascinating. Check out that movie, uh, Dad of the Year or something. Just do Robin Williams. Uh, you can do a Google search. You'll figure it out. Okay, great. And let me let me put in my la- you know, one last plug for uh, yes, la- oh, people just who find get to that. Yeah, people who find uh, the sort of thing I've been talking about interesting, uh, please sign up with the, uh, you know, go to uh, Facebook and go to Historian of the Strange and and sign up, like it, and do whatever else people do, and you you can you know you'll you'll get these regular uh, regular newspaper clippings, old stories. I think you'll enjoy it. Can I tell you a funny story? I hope this doesn't come off wrong, but I I was trying to find. I realize now that uh, through this diligent work that I did, uh, that your hub is the historian of the strange on Facebook. But originally I was like, well, he must have a proper website. So I put in uh, your name and the fourth one, the one, two, three, the fifth one that comes up is, is some other Robert Schneck, an obituary for some other Robert Schneck (laughs) right above amidst all the other information about you. Yeah. Yeah, So scrolling down, I was like, what the... What the hell is that's, this? Like, why? Why is that right why there? I normally, what you normally when I'm trying to be professional, I normally use my middle name oh, because there you go. there's a math. Oh, Robert there's a mathematician. Yeah. yeah, right. Because there's a mathematician named Robert Schneck, and uh, and he ends up in a lot of uh, a lot of journal articles and things like that. And uh, I am not him. I can't even do division. So there you go. <laughs> All right, so Historian of the Strange on Facebook uh, is how to find him. Do you mind still being on Facebook? Let me la- let me ask you that last question because uh, there's all this shit about Facebook. People hate Facebook now. Um, I, I found uh, that like, they don't distribute the material as well as they used to. Like, no, I feel don't. like people don't uh, see the group stuff anymore as much as they used to. No, they don't, and, and I don't understand it. Uh, they, I know that I'm constantly being hit. Facebook is constantly hitting me with these things on promote your site, you know, $5, $10, so yeah. many more people will see your stuff and uh I am not plan I I I'm not getting a prize for having a million people follow my Facebook page. So, yeah. I'm very happy to have people who enjoy this stuff and um you know, want to discuss it and want to talk about it. Um, they're, they're fine. I don't need. Uh, I don't need a million people. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, brother. On that note, uh, I'll let you get going. You can just hang up. I'm going to say good night to the audience, and uh, I hopefully I'll talk to you again soon and see you uh, down the line for sure in person. I hope. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks for everyone for listening. Thanks again, brother. Be well. You too. Bye bye. Good night. There you go, folks. That was Robert Schneck talking uh, a lot about autoerotic asphyxiation. I hope that I hope that didn't put people off, but I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought it was interesting. And like I said, where else are you ever going to hear this stuff? Um, but 
the Nall of America and uh, some of these other more obscure outlets. That was really uh, an in-depth exploration on uh, a taboo topic you almost never hear about. And, uh, yeah, on that note, let me think. What's going on next? Well, next Friday night is uh, July 3rd, which is right before 4th of July. It's like 4th of July Eve, I guess some people are calling it. A lot of people are calling it that. Uh, and so, I don't know. I may do a show. I may not. Uh, I'm thinking about doing a Banal of America block party and bringing on different people or something like that. But the name sounds great. The commitment and the work of trying to put it together sounds terrible. So I don't know <laughs> if that will happen, but I'd like to do it. Uh Otherwise, I feel like we really need to do an update with Dr. Tyler Coke, John, very soon. Things are getting very hairy here with the uh, coronavirus. Um, God, thank God, here in Massachusetts, as you've been, anyone who listened to the Corona Cast knows, we were extremely diligent in fighting uh, the pandemic. And as luck would have it, we're doing very, very, very well here. All the numbers are going down. Um, we're all still wearing masks. Uh, and everyone is, is – but, but anyone who follows me on social media has seen I've been out and about over the last uh, week. So I'm enjoying outdoor activities, which is nice. But in a lot of these other places around the country, things are getting fucking crazy um, and today, I think we had the largest number of new cases since all this started. So, and to put that in perspective, we've had more cases this week than we had uh, in any week during the uh, 10 weeks plus that we did the Corona cast. So things are, are swooping back up again, and as such... I feel like we need to do an update with uh, Dr. Tyler Koch, John, uh, sooner rather than later. So that may be – I don't know if we're going to do that next Friday. I do like that block party idea, but I also don't want to do any work. Uh, so there's also other days next weekend. It's a long weekend. But uh, I may touch base with Tyler and do a show with him sometime next week. So I would say there will be something from us. <laughs> uh, next week, and uh, if not, we'll be back on the 10th, but uh, stay tuned to Banal of America, BOA on Facebook, Banal on Twitter for more information. And on that note, with all that said, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks again to Robert Schneck, historian of the strange on Facebook. Uh, punch in Robert Damon Schneck, S-C-H-N-E-C-K into Amazon to pick up his books. Uh, uh, yeah, and that's about it. So, with all that said, thanks to everybody listening. And, uh, oh, one more time, Jim Vujovic and Sasquara in the chat room and all the folks who listened live as well. With all that said, I gotta go to bed, man. I'm tired. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is Tim and all. Oh,